Reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in, it, in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has yet not come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Depending on how you count the uh, messages that I preached during the Advent season from John chapter 1, this is part 3 or part 4 of this series, Behold the Lamb. I just want you to know, I have a commentary. It's an exegetical commentary by James Montgomery Boyce, who was a Presbyterian pastor and theologian. He is now with the Lord. But basically, the commentary is all of the sermons that he preached on various texts from the Gospel of John. And when we get to the point where we are today, he was on sermon number 26. So just, just to give you a sense of how rich and full this material is, um, there's so much in just John chapter 2 that we're not going to be able to talk about today because it's, it's just too much. And um, we're trying to go through the Gospel of John before the Lenten Easter season is over and, and even into Pentecost, and we still have to just keep moving very quickly. But at the end of John chapter 1, Jesus had at that time been revealed to Israel by John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, this is why I came baptizing, so that the Christ, Jesus, could be revealed to Israel. If you ever have a conversation with somebody, and this probably won't happen often, but you know, why did John the Baptist, Bap, Baptist baptize? Well, that's why. He came baptizing so that through his ministry, Jesus could be revealed to the people of Israel. Well, after his baptism, Jesus went off into the wilderness for that 40-day period where he was tested by the devil, and then he came back from the wilderness, and we believe it's at that point when he sees John the Baptist again, and John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And on this occasion, as John makes that pronouncement about Jesus, two of John's own disciples are standing right there, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God, and they both turn and walk away in company with Jesus. You know, imagine if you were standing, you know, you had a guest pastor in your church and, you know, you came up afterwards and, you know, complimented him. So that, was a, that was an excellent sermon. And a couple of your members said, yeah, that was so excellent. We're going to go to his church from now on. It's kind of what's happening here. But, but later on, we'll see John understood that. John the Baptist understood. He 
had to decrease. Jesus had to increase. Jesus had to get bigger and bigger. And John's ministry, which had all been about announcing the coming of the Christ, had to just diminish and fade from the scene. One of the two that left with Jesus that day was Andrew. And having learned where Jesus was staying that night, he went and found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ or anointed. It was Andrew who brought Peter to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, son of Jonah sometimes. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. You will be called a rock. Um, that's how Jesus renamed him. The next day, Jesus is kind of moving on, walking around the region of Galilee. He found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. And Philip did follow Jesus, but before that, he found Nathanael, which means God has given, and told him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God. Nathanael immediately questioned Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, understand, Philip, or Nathanael will later be identified in John as Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and Cana and Capernaum and Nazareth, these are all towns that are really very close to each other. So one possibility here is that Nathanael is saying, can anything good come from here, like this dismal place. How could something good come out of here? Another possibility is there were these local rivalries, perhaps. You know, maybe the girls' basketball team from the synagogue school in Cana constantly beat the girls' basketball team from the synagogue school in Nazareth, and they just couldn't get along. And so can anything good come out of Nazareth? We're not sure exactly why he said what he did. I, I kind of imagine, I, I don't know, I'm just weird enough. I was always a big fan of the show Corner Gas. And so I imagine the people in Dog River who every time they said Woolerton would spit on the ground, you know, Nazareth, you know, something like that. We, we really don't know. But from this inauspicious beginning, Nathaniel went with Philip to meet Jesus. And that leads us to John chapter 1, verses 47 to 51 which reads, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael, being a humble soul, said, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And then Nathanael said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now compare that to Philip's introduction. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth and Cana were actually close together, close enough together that Nathaniel might have even known who Joseph was and even Jesus, his son. He had just never thought of him in terms of being the Messiah, the, the king of Israel. But when he meets Jesus in person, and Jesus speaks to him. His, his reaction is this, Rabbi, teacher, you are the son of God. Not the son of Joseph. You are the king of Israel, not the carpenter. His reaction may feel a little bit over the top, but ultimately all he's saying is, Philip, what you said was true. This is the one. 
of whom Moses wrote in the law and all the prophets too. That's who they were writing about. That's who they were prophesying. That's who they said would come to be our rock and our redeemer. The Christ, the son of the living God, Nathaniel, is ready to believe. He was looking for that redeemer who was to come, and when Jesus spoke, his word convinced Nathaniel that his search was finished. He had found the one of whom Moses wrote. You may remember a couple of weeks back that this was the purpose for which the Gospel of John was written. John chapter 20, verse 31 said, These signs, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. These things that Jesus did have been written down so that when you hear this word from the Lord, you will believe that Jesus actually is God's only anointed, his son, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So having heard Jesus speak, Nathanael believed, at least to some extent. But back in chapter 1, verse 50, Jesus answered Nathanael, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? And this is the part I really want to call to your attention from chapter 1 anyway. Jesus went on, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, which is a pretty huge statement if you think about it. We hear that, you will see heaven opened and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. A curious reader might ask, well, when exactly did that precise thing happen? And maybe begin turning pages, looking for the event. But Jesus wasn't referring to one specific time or one specific moment in his ministry. Certainly the transfiguration would sort of fall into that category. But really what he's saying is that as we walk through this gospel of John, we're going to see this. We're going to see Jesus revealed as the Christ, the Son of God. We're going to see it in every word that he speaks. We're going to see it in every sign, every act that he performs. John's words from chapter 1, verse 14, are going to be expanded for us throughout the rest of this gospel. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word who was God, the word by whom all things were made and for whom all things exist. He became flesh. He took on a human body, a human life. And he dwelt for a while. The, the word there is really fascinating. It's he tabernacled. He pitched his tent among us. He came from somewhere else and he went on a little camping trip for 33 or 34 years. Pitching his tent among us so that we could see his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus said, you will see greater things than these. And that's what Nathaniel was going to see. The revelation of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, who takes away our sins. And it all began on one of the most ordinary of occasions. Chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. 
Now, as I said, later on in John, John 21, we will discover that that was Nathaniel's hometown. It was a relatively small town, too, so it's at least possible that this wedding involved people from his own family, and the proximity of Cana to Nazareth leads us to think, because Mary was there as well, that there could have been like a whole big family thing going on here. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there, and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. There was a recent sort of TV production of this that at least hinted at the idea that Jesus and his disciples kind of crashed the wedding, and that's why they ran out of wine. In that TV production, one of the disciples was even quite, I think, tipsy would be a polite way of saying it. But there's no indication of that here in the text. This wedding was an event, and weddings in those days had, were planned for a long time ahead because they lasted for three days or more sometimes. And Mary was there, as well as Jesus and his disciples, and they were invited. Verse 2, Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So not exactly an everyday event. Weddings didn't take place all the time in that society any more than they do in ours, but it was still something that's as ordinary as life. Weddings are special. We all acknowledge that, but they do happen quite frequently, hopefully not in any one person's life, but <laughs> they do. And whether through Nathaniel's connections or Mary's, Jesus and his disciples were invited to the party, and they chose to attend. Presumably all was well. And the people who were at this wedding were enjoying themselves, even today. People make much of a wedding, but in those days, like I said, they lasted usually about three days, sometimes a little bit more. And Jesus did not hesitate to attend. One commentator has written, I think this point is important, for this is the first of many stories suggesting that Jesus was always welcome among those who were having a good time. Now, as a pastor over the years, I've, I've been to some weddings, of course, I've performed some, and it's always been my experience that they kind of want me out of the way by about seven or eight o'clock on the night of the reception because they feel like, you know, the pastor sort of inhibits the good times. Um, I don't know why people would feel that way. And I don't know if the fact that Jesus was always welcome where there was a good time says more about what the nature of their good times were compared to ours, or if it says more about Jesus or more about us. But they were glad that they had invited Jesus to this party, and they were glad that he had stayed because they were about to experience a domestic crisis when the wine ran out. And this was a massive faux pas. Um, to run out of wine before you ran out of wedding was just so embarrassing to the people in those days. And, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, possibly somehow connected to the families that were part of this wedding, came to Jesus and said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus replies to Mary, woman, not mother, what does this have to do with me? And sometimes we read that, and, and some of you ladies are thinking, I would be super offended if one of my sons came to me in a public venue and instead of saying, hey, mom, <laughs> said to me, woman, what have, has this to do with me? The Greek's actually simpler than that. It's hard to translate it. It's kind of like, what to me 
and what to thee? You know, and, and this is what Jesus said to his mother. And we wonder, now, now first of all, woman was not a, a term of derision or disrespect in any way. In the Gospel of John, we're going to see Jesus address some other women in that way. It's not a term of disrespect. Jesus is not disrespecting his mother here. And the answer to why he does address her this way is found in those next words, my hour has not yet come. And we don't know what was in Mary's mind when she approached her son. It seems unlikely, extremely unlikely, that she in any way expected him to do something along the lines of what he actually did. This was the first of Jesus' signs. He had not done other miracles. I don't think Mary came to him expecting that he was going to turn water into wine. I, I doubt that she would have asked for that, even if she thought he was capable of it. It's far more probable that seeing Jesus arrive at the feast as a rabbi with several disciples in tow, she was simply looking at him for wisdom. If you've ever seen the, the movie or the stage play Fiddler on the Roof, Think of how often they turn to the rabbi with these profound questions. Is there a proper blessing for the czar? And things like that. Because the rabbi was supposed to know what to say and what to do. So here you are in this terribly awkward social situation. They have run out of wine. And Mary, who's probably a bit of a proud mom, her son's now the rabbi, you know, he's the minister, he's the doctor, he's the one to whom we turn, she goes to him to sort of enlist him to step into this situation and do something about it. She has seen Jesus arrive with his disciples in tow, and she says, what are we to do about this? They have run out of wine. Even so, Jesus turns to her and says, woman, what has this to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, that's an idea that's going to occur several times through this Gospel of John. Variations on that, my hour has not yet come. The hour is coming. In one case, the hour is coming and now is, and very similar sorts of expressions. Leading up to John chapter 17, verse 1, where Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And that's speaking of his forthcoming death on the cross. He's saying this ultimate time, this final hour, at just the right time, Galatians tells us, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem us from the curse of the law. And when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, in John chapter 2, this is the hour that he's referring to. It's like, I'm not supposed to step to the forefront at this point and start taking credit and becoming known. And furthermore, I think we're seeing a simple shift in family dynamics here. In Luke chapter 2, you may remember Mary's then 12-year-old son frightened the daylights out of her parents by staying behind at Jerusalem while the rest of the party went on home to Nazareth, and he was out of their company for three days while he remained at the temple interacting with the priests and the teachers there. And when Mary and Joseph finally found him there in the temple, she said, son, definitely a word of subordination, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus replied, 
Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Which might have sounded a little bit peculiar to the people who thought that Joseph was his father and his father's house was in Nazareth. But Jesus, even at 12, is saying there's, there's more going on here probably than what you have ever imagined. But he went down with them and came to Nazareth, Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And, and maybe Mary's approach in John chapter 2 was as simple as the relative of the bride and groom who was hoping against hope that her son, now the rabbi, would have some simple solution to offer for this embarrassing situation. And it seems to me that on some level she thought to sort of command him. I'm your mother. This is what you need to do. They have run out of wine. Fix it. Figure something out here. But after hearing his answer, and maybe remembering those things that she had treasured up in her heart, not only at Bethlehem, but also at Jerusalem 12 years later, Mary comes to realize that Jesus is not her son to command anymore. Quite the other way around, really. So in verse 5, she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. He's in charge now. Listen to him. Do what he wants. This is not about me. There's something else happening here. But because his hour had not yet come, Jesus works behind the scenes. He actually does something in response to what the situation Mary has brought to him, but not in response to her, in response to the situation. And he doesn't do it publicly. He does it behind the scenes. Verses 6 and following, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. There's at least something slightly humorous in that, and Nathaniel of Cana saying at the beginning of this story, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth, sorry, it's a hard word to say. Say it over and over several times fast. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And here the best wine that any of them have ever had comes out of Nazareth because it comes from Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And there's so much more that could be said about these verses. But look particularly at verse 11, the next one. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that some might take this to be fairly trivial as signs go. Some people don't like miracles or answers to prayer that deal with anything less than life and death. And this is just, they were out of wine. It was awkward. It's going to be embarrassing. And yet Jesus does the first of his signs there at Cana in Galilee. And it may leave us wondering, why? 
Why is this the first sign? Why does he do it then? Why at a poor wedding in kind of a backwater, tiny little town? I want you to think about this. For one thing, it is not trivial at all. Changing water to wine involves altering a substance at its molecular level. Changing pure water into wine is not something that anybody has ever done before or since. These six stone jars with 20 or 30 gallons each were filled to the brim. So it's not like Jesus came along with some Kool-Aid and mixed it up. He just changed it. He reached out in the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, and he altered the substance, transforming it from one thing to another. There's another whole sermon here on the six stone jars for purification and on the transformation that Jesus does when he changes this very ordinary clean water into something ever such more, oh, so much more precious. But today I just want to focus on this. Changing pure water into wine means that Jesus is not only the creator of all things, as was explained to us in John chapter 1, Jesus is the Lord of all things. He is Lord over his creation. The late R.C. Sproul used to say something like, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God would ever be fulfilled. God is not in control, but he is. The one who created all things is the Lord of all things. And he has not only the ability, but the right to do what he wants with his creation. The potter has a right over the clay to make whatever kind of vessel he wants to, and the pot has no right to say to the potter, why did you make me this way? Jesus Christ is the sovereign creator of all things. He is the sovereign Lord as well over all of his creation. The psalmist said, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas. It's his because he founded it. It belongs to him because he made it and he established it upon the rivers. When Jesus changed the water into wine, he is definitively demonstrating something that Abraham Kuyper once said. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Not a single square inch from the swirling galaxies and supernovas in outer space to these six stone jars of pure water at Cana of Galilee, the Lord of heaven and earth says, mine. And because they are his, he can do with them as he pleases. And that's why John recorded it as he did. And just look at what happened next. This was the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. He did this sign and he showed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Why specifically his disciples? Well, they're the ones who knew what happened. 
John records that the master of the feast and the bridegroom had absolutely no idea where this wine came from. It's kind of a little joke almost. The servants who filled the pots are then told, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they're probably thinking, hmm, water. That's an interesting thing to serve at a wedding. But they dip it out and they take it to the master of the feast. And when the master tastes it, he says, this is unbelievable. Normally, people serve the best wine first, and then when everybody's had quite a bit to drink and they don't care so much anymore, that's when they serve the cheap stuff. You kept the good stuff till now, and the servants and the disciples who were with Jesus, who knew what had happened behind the scenes, realize this is incredible. We have never seen anything like this before. They beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And beholding that, seeing this sign, his disciples believed in him. So in the end, this story is not about the woman or the wedding or the wine. In the end, it's about the sign that Jesus performed and the faith that began to grow in the hearts of his disciples when they saw what happened. And we're going to see this throughout the book, as in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And even in the cleansing of the temple, which we just don't have time to go there this morning, at the end of John chapter 2, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem and he cleanses the temple and there's probably two sermons in that one. But even in that cleansing of the temple, the Jews, the priests and teachers of the law, come to him and they ask, what sign do you show us for doing these things? If you're going to come in here and you're going to cleanse this rather large um, courtyard where there are people buying and selling animals and trading coins and all of this is creating a gigantic profit for Caiaphas and Annas, the chief priest. If you're going to come in here and do this, you better be able to prove that you have the right, that you have the authority to do this, kind of similar to what happened in Cana. Does Jesus have authority over even his mother, his blood, family? Yes. Now does Jesus have authority over the house that belongs to his father? And the answer is yes. But when they asked him for a sign, he didn't do another miracle. He didn't feed 5,000 or change water to wine or even heal some people. He's doing that in Jerusalem, but not on this occasion. When they come to him and they say, give us a sign to show us how, why you were doing these things, Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now they were, of course, confused because they didn't know the end of the story from before the story was told the way that we do. So he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they turned to him, probably laughing. What kind of a lunatic are you? It took 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? But we're told that John, looking back under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, remembered that, and he went on to write, but he was speaking, Jesus was speaking, 
about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed. Jesus said, here's the the big sign, the one that's most important, the one that matters more than anything else I'm going to do. It matters more than changing water to wine. It matters more than raising Lazarus or the widow of Nairn's son from the dead. It matters more than all the lepers I'm going to heal and the blind people who will be given their sight, the cripples who will be made to walk. This is the one that conclusively proves that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that I have the right to rule over this temple, destroy the temple of my body, and in three days, I will raise it up. That was the sign. And when the disciples looked back after the death and resurrection of Christ and remembered what he had said, they believed. Notice that they not only believed because of the sign, they believed the scripture, the written word, and the word that Jesus had spoken. And again, this is the point. It was the point then, and it's the point now. These are written so that you may believe. Jesus came, and he did these things, and he worked with his disciples, and ultimately, he died on the cross. He shed his blood to pay for our sins, and he rose from the dead, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and John wrote all of these things down with one thing in mind, so that you and I, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And it's not an academic exercise, John says, so that by believing, you may have life in his name. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father by any other means. No one comes to the Father except through him. And John wrote this down so that in hearing the word of the scripture and the word of God spoken to us by the Holy Spirit as we read this word, we could believe. Faith would be born within us and that believing we would have life in his name. It's so important. We'll come back to it over and over in this book. We really will. But it's also so important that John, when later wrote, he wrote a letter to the churches, he said in that letter, I want to point to that again. I want to point to Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God again. And he wrote, if we receive the testimony of men, if we believe what other human beings say to us, the testimony of God is greater. If we believe humans most of the time, we ought to believe God. When he puts it in his word, this is the way of life. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. We'll see later on in the Gospel of John. That's the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who gives that testimony that that we belong to him, body and soul, in life and in death. Whoever does not believe, though, God has made, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. 
And this is the testimony. This is the record. This is the witness. The Greek word can be translated any of those ways. That God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son, whoever has come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and to trust in that has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you. Again, John says, I write for a reason. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The purpose of the gospel is, I write these things so that you may believe. And the purpose of 1 John, I write to you who believe so that you may know, so that you may have certainty, so that you may have confidence that you have eternal life. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and may God graciously give us ears that hear and hearts that believe and the certainty that it's in Christ alone that we have life and peace and hope.